Today's readings come from Lamentations 3, 22 to 33, and Mark 5, 21 to 43. In Lamentations, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those whose hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke while he is young. Let him sit alone in silence, for the Lord has laid it on him. Let him bury his face in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him offer his cheek to one who would strike him, and let him be filled with disgrace. For no one is cast off by the Lord forever. Though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. For he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. In Mark, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she can be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out of him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and you still ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, and trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. While Jesus was still speaking, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Overhearing what they said, Jesus told him, Don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people crying and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kaum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Good morning, everyone. Grace, mercy, and peace are yours from the triune God. Amen. How many of you here today, and those of you who are viewing at home, are used to being in crowds again? Any takers? Because I'm not. <laughs> um, when I see gatherings of people, my brain starts to find ways to avoid it. And if that crowd is actually where I'm headed, I start asking myself questions about masks and personal space and hand sanitizer and all of those things. And then I remember, I've been vaccinated for quite some time now. And then my anxiety lowers just a little bit but only enough to then allow my brain to start thinking about variants and drops off in vaccination rates and the people who I come in contact with who are immunocompromised, who I want to protect. And I find myself rolling around like a ball of nerves, like trying to avoid people. But then something strange happens after about five or 10 minutes. I find myself remembering that I really enjoy people. <laughs> And I really like being around y'all. So the thing that I have to remember is that it's going to take time to adjust to this new normal. And that we're all in this together. We're all in this process of being restored into community. And we're all going to find new ways of navigating the world and being restored to all these things that we've been doing even though sometimes it's familiar, it has changed. Last weekend, I went to my first baseball game in nearly two years. Uh, to get to the stadium in downtown Pittsburgh, we had to take the tea, and the ride there was uneventful. There weren't a lot of people. Um, the train car was pretty empty. However, on the return trip, it was more like LaFont Plaza at rush hour on game day, I don't know if anybody here knows that, but it's quite packed. And so there was just no way to avoid any kind of contact. We find the story this morning picking up in a similarly packed crowd um, in our gospel story this morning. And Jesus, having returned from the other side of Galilee, was surrounded by a great crowd when a man named Jairus threw himself at Jesus' feet. This wasn't any man just begging for Jesus' help. This was a prominent citizen and leader of the synagogue. But now, he was one who actually welcomed Jesus. Although other Jewish leaders had opposed him on this day, in this moment, Jairus was a desperate father whose little girl was on the brink of death. And as I would imagine any parent would, he was willing to do anything to make her well. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her, and she will be healed and live. He believes that Jesus' touch might save his daughter. That is, heal her and return her to fullness of life. So Jesus goes right away. With this, however, the crowd returns pressing in on them. It's at this point that Mark shifts the narrative to that of a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. Commentators on the Gospel of Mark, Father Dan Harrington and Father John Donahue, note that only rich people could afford to spend money on doctors. Sound familiar, anyone? American healthcare system? 
Um, they write, quote, since only those with financial means visited physicians in antiquity, and since the woman had independent resources, she must have been a woman of some status and wealth. Mark's description of her condition brings out her dire state. She's physically ill, ritually unclean, and near impoverishment. Neither religion nor social standing offer her much help. She becomes worse. So we see that while Jairus' daughter is near death, the woman is approaching death as well. End quote. In stark contrast to Jairus' bold approach and unhesitating plea for help, this woman had to sneak a healing. To understand the reason for her secretive approach, we must look at the social complexity of her culture. According to Levitical codes, every person with a menstrual cycle is deemed ritually unclean while they were bleeding and for a short time after. The ritual impurity affects not only their body, but everything that they touch and everything that touches them. Because this woman's bleeding didn't ever stop, she was in a perpetual state of being ritually unclean. Think unending COVID quarantine, except at a time without technology to connect us with others. There would be few people with whom she could interact and, when she was, and she was unable to participate in synagogue and community life. Imagine how um, isolating and demoralizing that was. So the woman reasons with herself, if I could just get close enough to touch his clothes, I'll be healed. And she is sure of this. She is sure that if she can just touch his garment, it will be enough. But because of her impurity, she can't do what she does in an open and public way. It's necessary for her to exercise her agency from behind, amidst the pressing crowd. And a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years and having suffered from many physicians and having spent everything she had but not having gotten better but having rather gotten worse and having heard about Jesus and having come up behind him, touched his clothes. Immediately, both she and Jesus knew something had happened. She knew she had been healed. Jesus turns around and says, who touched my clothes? The disciples, in all of their wisdom, scoffed. What do you mean, who touched your clothes? Do you not see the crowd around you? There are tons of people here. Everyone's touched you by now. The woman comes forward in fear and trembling, realizing what had happened. And she had been on the margins of society, knowing that touching others would make them unclean, and it's an incredibly risky move. She falls down and confesses everything. Jesus, taking an equally big risk, stops and talks with this woman who is unaccompanied and is unclean. But that's who Jesus is. Jesus risks offending social conventions and religious rules to help people. He names her daughter, drawing her into a familial position with which she is restored. 
She's restored in peace and free from suffering because her faith has healed her. And we don't know what Iris was thinking during this entire encounter. But there may be, have been some level of impatience and frustration and anger knowing that his little girl was in danger too. She was on the brink of death and there wasn't a moment to lose. But as Jesus was pronouncing healing and restoration on this unnamed woman, someone came from Jairus' house to deliver the bad news that his daughter had died. Jesus possibly now referencing the healed woman's faith urges Jairus to not give in to fear, but to keep faith. Even though the story started very public, and it was a public call to minister to a sick girl. Jesus decided to proceed with only three disciples and Jairus, and they left the crowd behind. When they arrived at the house, the commotion of loud crying and wailing was most likely part of the customary ritual for professional mourners, which would have been hired. And Jesus said, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not asleep, not is, is not dead, but is asleep. Jesus' question, as in the last scene when he was scoffed at, makes them incredulous. Professional mourners know that death is for keeps. People don't come back from death. So they laugh at Jesus' statement about sleep. However, this notion of sleep rep represents more than a denial of death. It also indicates that God's ultimate purpose is still in play. Since the scene is no longer about healing, but about restoring to life the now dead little girl, the stakes are even higher. Jesus sends everyone but the parents out, thus privatizing the moment even more. Perhaps such a moment are not meant for everyone's eyes. At any rate, Jesus once again asks, risks impurity and touches the little girl by grasping her hand. His imperative is clear. Little girl, get up. These words are more about more than just locomotion. They're resurrection words. To everyone's astonishment, she got up and started walking around. Along with the command to keep this act quiet, he told them to give her something to eat, something that we all love doing in community. This restores her to her shared life with her family. And Jesus' words and his touch are all about this restoration. The two intercalated stories involving Jairus' daughter and the bleeding woman, help demonstrate Jesus' character not just as a healer, but as connected to saving in matters of life and death. Saving is more important here because the Greek word has overtones for both salvation and for healing. In verses 23, 28, and 34 in the NIV translations, the Greek word sozo was translated as be healed. However, it could be translated as save or be made well. It's a rich word with, with 
which implies deliverance from the enemies of life that threaten authentic, um, authentic existence. And later in Mark 10, Sozo is paralleled and equated with have eternal life, enter the kingdom of God, and be saved. Thus, even when it refers to physical healing alone, the connotation of restoration to fullness of life is not that far of a reach. Likewise, in these two stories, healing is not only from infirmity, but restoration of two daughters from deathly existence to life. Often throughout our lives, we find ourselves in need of healing and restoration. Sometimes it's physical, sometimes emotional, spiritual, mental. Sometimes our choices have led us here, and sometimes we simply find ourselves here through no fault of our own. No matter how we end up in these places, we can't restore ourselves, though that doesn't stop us from trying, because give me a sliver of light in the tomb that I have built myself. I will try. Fortunately, Jesus is in the restoration business. He provides restoration to our bodies and our communities. He also models how we as community can continue in this restorative work. Like many people, I find myself often living up here in my head and forget that I have an entire body from my neck down until something goes wrong, like that time I broke my ankle. I don't know how many of you remember, but that was quite bad. Society incessantly tries to tell us how lacking our bodies are. Nothing ever seems good enough. We're either too short, too tall, too fat, too thin, too strong, too weak. There are always room for improvement. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't care for our bodies. We should as part of caring for God's creation. However, the vast majority of us suffer from some level of self-criticism or even bullying that we either shut off our bodies or all we do is beat ourselves up and it's exhausting. But in the creation story, we find that God created our bodies and declares our very existence as good. So perhaps the first step towards healing is being restored to our own bodies. If we look at these two stories in Mark, their bodies were the very things betraying them, keeping them from being part of society and even just alive. They weren't cursed by God and their ailments weren't a consequence of something they had done. Sometimes bodies get sick or they don't work the way they're supposed to. These stories of healing and restoration testify to our embodied Savior who took on flesh and walked this earth with us. He understands the power of the physical. What if we saw our bodies the way that God sees them, each a beautiful, dignified, worthy creation? Maybe we might just experience the healing and liberation that Christ embodies rather than beating ourselves down. What if we treated our bodies with self-love that isn't consumed with itself, 
but affirms the image of God that is in ourselves and our neighbors. The extremes of our interpersonal community failings, interpersonal and community failings, are even more disturbing. There's racism, white supremacy, homophobia, transphobia, xenophobia, fatphobia, sexism, ageism, ableism. The list goes on and on and on. We aren't just comparing ourselves with some super, superficial societal norm. We compare others to those insidious and imaginary standards as well. Christ understood the power of being in community and how quickly an ailment or perceived difference could get you ostracized. What would it look like if we stopped the comparison and instead celebrated the vast diversity of God's creation? Maybe a sign of community being restored is one that seeks to make room for all, recognizing that no one is better than another and that we are all equally loved and cherished by our maker. This sounds a little bit like kingdom making to me, something that we're called to do. Being restored doesn't just happen once, it's a continual process. Over and over and over again, we find ourselves wanting healing and redemption, forgiveness and wholeness and saving. We cry out like the psalmist in the call to worship, or the bleeding woman, or the father on behalf, of her on behalf of his daughter. We don't always know how we got here, but we know that we're in desperate need of rescue. In these moments, we look to Jesus, the one who restores our lives and commands us to get up and to go in peace, free from suffering. He was willing to risk impurity to care for the individuals. He crosses the sea. He walks headlong into the face of death and offers healing to those who are as good as dead. But his presence does more. For those who are dead, he raises to life, grasping those with who cannot even grasp back. At the same time, his presence and the promise of healing that prompt others have faith that give them faith to lead themselves there. This, this is the demonstration of profound solidarity leading us to a place of healing and grace, to a place of resurrection and new life. Thanks be to God.